Well, again, as we worship God, we turn now to his word. And we're turning this morning to the book of the Psalms. And in a little bit, we're going to look at Psalm 52. Admittedly, this is a slight detour from our recent sermon series on the books of First and Second Samuel. It's a detour, but it's not a departure from that series entirely. This is still a part of it. And to understand that, you just need to remember what we covered last Sunday. Last Sunday, we covered 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. And remember what we saw in those chapters, that unfolding story, that unfolding history, what we saw last week was David on the run. He went west and he sought refuge even among the Philistines. And then he came back and he went south and he hid out for a while in a cave in the territory of Judah. And then he went east and he sought refuge for his extended family among the Moabites. And then he came back west into the territory of Israel again and he hid out there again. David went wherever he had to go and he did whatever he had to do in order to find safety, in order to find refuge. Sadly, though David himself was able to stay safe that way, not everybody was. And remember what we saw last week, David sought assistance from Ahimelech the priest, and he deceived Ahimelech in order to get it, and Saul found out, thanks to one Doeg the Edomite, and that led Saul to have all the priests killed, indeed to have the entire priestly city of Nob wiped out, every single creature that drew breath, a kind of unholy, holy war. So that was last week, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. This morning, on the heels of that, we're turning to this other book in the Bible, we're turning to the Psalms, we're turning to Psalm 52. Why? Because Psalm 52 is a poem that David wrote when all of that was going on. And we're told that in the heading of the psalm. Listen to the heading of Psalm 52. It says this, To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So that's why we're taking this detour and heading over to Psalm 52 this morning. I mentioned this in in passing last Sunday. I think it might have been in our sermon discussion. It's one of the beauties of the Bible that you have built into the Bible different books, even different sections of books that shed valuable light on each other. And that's because they all emerge from the same historical time period. That's one of the great things about the Bible. That's one of the things that make it a fascinating book as well as life-giving. And there are several examples of this. So you have 
The later history of Israel recorded in the Old Testament, especially in books like Kings and Chronicles. But then you've also got the writings of the prophets who were speaking God's word while all that history was going on. And they weren't just speaking God's word at the same time. They were also speaking God's word in such a way as to make sense of that history. And so you can read a book like Second Kings and get the history, and then you can turn a few pages and read the book of the prophet Jeremiah, who was serving at that time. And each of them helps you to understand the other. And not only that, but Jeremiah, since we've landed on that example, Jeremiah pours out his soul in his book. So that you can even learn what the history felt like deeply and personally for one person who was bound up in it and who was impacted by it. Another example, you've got the early history of the Christian church that's recorded for us in the New Testament in the book of Acts. But then you've also got the letters of the Apostle Paul who was preaching Christ and writing those letters while that history was going on. And he wasn't just preaching and writing at the same time, it's more than that. His ministry was a huge part of that history. And so, for example, you can read Acts 17 and read the history of Paul's dealings in the city of Thessalonica, and then you can read the letters known as First and Second Thessalonians. And each of them Helps you to understand the other. That's why I made that our New Testament reading earlier in our service. And not only that, but just like Jeremiah, as we saw, Paul pours himself out in these letters. Bears his soul. Doesn't doesn't hide what, what he was feeling before and what he is feeling now that he's writing these things. So that you can learn what the history felt like personally, deeply. For someone who was bound up in it and impacted by it. For me, a helpful analogy of this is World War I. I enjoy reading history. I've been fascinated especially by that history, in part because that's a period of history that tends to get short shrift, in part because my own grandfather fought in that war. So I've got a whole lineup of books on my shelf at home about the Great War which in so many ways wasn't great at all. It was positively awful. So if I want, I can reach for John Keegan's book, The First World War, and I can get the history of it. Or Barbara Tuckman's book, The Guns of August, and I can get the history of how it got started. But if I want a different perspective, I reach for Peter Englund's book, The Beauty and the Sorrow, which is... From cover to cover, a collection of World War I era letters and and diary excerpts from soldiers and civilians and old men and young women and philosophers and shopkeepers. And that's how I get what it felt like deeply, personally, for the people who were impacted by it. So we see this in the Bible, we we see this in history ever since. Well, surely one of the clearest and most shining 
instances of this whole phenomenon in the Bible, this interplay between historical event and personal expression, is what we've got here this morning. Because lately we've been charting the unfolding history of the rise of David and now the trials of David in 1 Samuel. And then you turn a few pages to the Psalms. And what do we find in the Psalms? But David pouring out his heart over what he's going through. And it's one of the beauties of the Bible that we've got them both. Each of them helps us to understand the other. And not only that, but I'd say this as well. Each of them helps us to know God. Because God is the God of both. He's the God of history. With all of its names and dates and places and events and trend lines and turning points and sweeping horizons. And that same God is also the God of my life right now down to the most minute details, including what I'm feeling. He's the God of my life, and Christian, he's the God of yours as well, so that I can pour out my soul to him, and Christian, you can too. So, this morning, from 1 Samuel 21 and 22 to Psalm 52. And here's how I want to go about it. Before I actually read that psalm for us, Psalm 52... I want to say a few things about about this category of the Psalms, because there are quite a few of them that have these historical headings that are attached to them, that locate them in the history that you read elsewhere in the Bible. So let me say a little bit about this category of Psalms, and then when I've done that, we'll take out our magnifying glasses and we'll take a look at Psalm 52 in particular. So of the 150 psalms that we've got in the whole book of psalms, there are 73 that have the heading of David. 73 of them. So nearly half the book. And so it's no wonder that the whole book of psalms is referred to in the Bible itself as David's book. 73 out of 150 are are headed of David. So that means that those psalms are at least associated with him in some way. Surely he was the writer of many of them, if not most of them, that have that heading, perhaps even all, of David. Of those 73 that have the heading of David, there are 14 that have a little bit of historical detail as well, not just his name. So that they're associated with different moments in David's life and experience. And not surprisingly, a good number of those, by my count, 11, have to do with different moments when he's on the run or in danger. If if necessity is the mother of invention, danger can be the mother of poetry. And in David's case, it certainly was. So you can see how we're narrowing things down here. 150 psalms in the whole book. 73 that say of David, 14 that add some historical detail, 11 when he's in danger, when he's on the run. I hope you you got all those numbers. There will be a quiz next Sunday. And of those 11 that he wrote when he's on the run, when he's in danger, at least half of them are associated with with the chapters where we find ourselves right now in 1 Samuel. 
And that's why it makes sense for us to take this detour today. Now, we've got to say, the fact that these psalms are associated with different moments in David's life and experience, they they were inspired by his experiences in some way, that does not mean that what David writes in these psalms is therefore limited to those experiences, those episodes. One of the things that we're going to see and reflect upon is that David may have been moved to write because of something that he was going through, but of course he was perfectly free to broaden his horizons and express himself on a wide range of biblical truth, which is why sometimes it's not entirely clear with clear what the heading of the psalm has to do with some of the verses in the psalm, but that's just it. There doesn't have to be a clear connection. And, and I think we all know that from our own experience. I can think of things that I've written and preached in the past that were inspired and shaped by something I was going through at the time without, therefore, being limited to the subject of that experience. Although what I was going through at the time was reflected in what I preached or wrote. It was in there. It's just that there was more in there than what I was going through. And that's because what I was going through had the effect of ushering my own heart and mind into these broader, more expansive spaces of truth. Life is like that. Truth is like that. David's psalms are like that. Here's one example, Psalm 59. You don't have to turn there, but I offer this up as an example. Here's the heading to Psalm 59. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And remember, we saw that a few weeks back, chapter 19 in 1 Samuel. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. And that's when David's wife, Saul's daughter, came up with a way for David to escape. And it worked. So Psalm 59, David writes, inspired by that narrow escape. And here's how the psalm begins. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. So Psalm 59 is inspired by this close call with Saul who wants to kill him. And yet David is ushered into these expansive places where he's reflecting upon God's dealings with the nation. Psalm 34 is another example of this. Listen to the heading of Psalm 34. It says this, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Well, that's associated with an episode that we saw just last week in 1 Samuel 21. It must be that Abimelech and Achish are 
Different ways of referring to that same Philistine king. Remember back in 1 Samuel 21? It said, David was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, among the Philistines. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And that's when David came up with his own way of making an escape, and it worked. So Psalm 34, David writes because of that episode in his own life. So what does he say in Psalm 34? He writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And that is such a helpful companion poem to what we saw last week when David changes his behavior among the Philistines as a way of saving his own neck. Because when we read that story last week, remember, you can't help but smile a little bit when you read that story, that there's a slight comical tone to the way that it's recounted. But then you turn to Psalm 34 and you're reminded that at the same time that you're smiling at the way it unfolds, you're trembling. Because it was a fearful circumstance for David. And it was a circumstance in which the Lord rescued David from what might have been his end. So in these Psalms, you see David writing these things in the midst of experiences, inspired by them. And yet he's writing things, he's affirming truths that are grander and broader than just his own personal experiences. Life is like that. David's psalms are like that, including now, thanks for your patience, Psalm 52. So to set the stage for Psalm 52, remember what we saw last week in 1 Samuel 22. Saul is moaning and he's whining and he's propounding these paranoid conspiracy theories 1 Samuel 22, Saul says, None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. That's what Doeg says, and we know what it led to. Now listen to Psalm 52, beginning with the heading. To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. 
Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So there is Psalm 52. Now, as I say, let's take out our magnifying glasses and take a closer look at what's actually here. Take a look at the heading. It begins, to the choir master. So, presumably, this poem came to be sung to the choir master. And then it says, a maskil of David. We can admit it's not entirely clear what the word maskil means. And not just this one term. There are others that you find in these headings that appear to be terms that have to do with, with poetry, with music. There are different theories as to what maskil meant, and those theories run the gamut. Might have to do with imparting wisdom. That's one theory. Might have to do with requiring skill in the performance of it. That's another theory. We don't know, and that's okay. In any case, what comes next is the historical detail. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So it's interesting. It does not say when Doeg the Edomite massacred the priests of God. Or when Doeg the Edomite put the priestly city of Nob to the sword and killed everything that drew breath. No, it says, when he came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And sure enough, what David focuses on in the psalm that follows is not bloodshed so much as it is deceit. What David focuses on here is scheming and treachery. So that's the, that's the heading. And then the psalm that follows, nine verses. I think, I think it's a help if we can break it up into these three sections. First section of the psalm, verses one through four, we'll call this section falsehood. Falsehood. These verses have to do with the characterization of David's enemy. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So notice, it's a combination of the internal and the external. In other words, it's a combination of what's in the heart and how that comes out in words. The enemy that David has in view here, this is somebody who's false inside and out. Notice as well, it's a combination of sin and positively trusting in sin. In other words, it's, it's not just doing evil, it's boasting in it. 
This is foolishly misplaced confidence. He's saying it's not just that you're doing evil, it's also that you think you're going to get away with it. That you're going to triumph by it. That you're somehow going to outlast the steadfast love of God. You think you're going to win. And and notice one more. It's a combination of substance and strategy. In other words, it's not just false words. It's false words for a purpose, for a goal, for an aim. This guy's not just a, a liar. He's a plotter. He's a schemer. He's a strategist. He lies for a reason, and that reason is to devour and destroy. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. In fact, this this enemy, he's so much a liar that you can just sum him up by referring to him as a deceitful tongue. It's like that's who he really is. That's the main thing that's true of him. If you want to know this person, it's all you need to know. Deceitful tongue. Now, we've got to pause here in this first section on falsehood. David is saying this about somebody who was guilty of deception. We can acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that in the story itself that we read last week in 1 Samuel 21 and 22... Doeg the Edomite is not explicitly recorded as having deceived anyone, and David is. How's that for a twist as we think about Psalm 52? Doeg is not explicitly recorded as deceiving anyone, but David is. So what do we make of that? Well, two comments. First of all, in the case of Doeg, though we weren't told explicitly that he deceived anyone in the story last week, Still, it is the case that he played some kind of double game. He did pretend to be something other than what he really was. And the other comment is, in the case of David, yes, it's true, he deceived Ahimelech the priest. Remember, Ahimelech asked him why he'd come there and why he came there alone. And the story that David told him wasn't true. And David admitted at the end of the story that his actions played a part in getting all those people killed. So all of that's true. But whatever we end up concluding about David's deception, Doeg's is still wicked. It's not like there's some kind of moral equivalence here that therefore renders us silent when it comes to those who lie in opposition to God. David is perfectly in the right to write what he writes here. And not only that, but what Doeg did from start to finish, that was a true reflection of his own soul as an enemy of God in a way that David never was. So that's our first section here. Falsehood. False man. Deceitful tongue. Verses 1 through 4. The next section of this psalm, verses 5 through 7, we'll call this section future. And yes, these all do begin with F. Future, because these verses, 5 through 7, they have to do with what's in store for David's enemy. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. Verse 5, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living 
The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That's the future that's in store for anyone who would set himself against God with falsehood that is inside and out and and boastful and strategic, all of those things that we saw before. That's the future that's in store. And it is that because God himself is going to bring it about. David says, God will break you down. This isn't impersonal. This isn't just, well, things will take a turn. No, this is God will break you down. And the very people that you sought to break down with your lies, they'll see it. And they'll be the ones who are summing you up and not the other way around. Again, it's not just that you lied. It's that you boasted in it. You rested in it. You sought refuge in it. You thought you were going to win. Foolish, misplaced confidence. And you're going to be exposed. You're going to be exposed for everyone to see. That's the future. That's a hard word. That is a sobering word. But there it is. Verses 5 through 7. And then the last section of the psalm. And here the contrast is stark and it's, it's glorious. Last section of the psalm, verses 8 and 9, we'll call flourishing. Flourishing. Because these verses have to do now with David himself. David as a man of faith and hope. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And that's how the psalm ends. What is so remarkable about that conclusion to the psalm is that that is not what it felt like when we read the conclusion of this particular historical episode last week in 1 Samuel 22. This is not what that felt like. Remember how chapter 22 ended? 1 Samuel? There's been this terrible massacre. And a man named Abiathar is the only one who's managed to escape. And he makes his way to David. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Now you read that. Again, this is why it's so helpful to have the history and the poetry side by side. You read that at the end of 1 Samuel 22, and you might come away with the impression that David was just shaken and nothing more. Perhaps burdened with guilt. Perhaps fearful about the future and just trying to put on a brave face, perhaps despondent about his own spiritual state. And no doubt he felt low. He should have. And yet, he was such a man of faith that even in those depths, 
He could say what he says here. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Even in those depths, David could say, by the grace of God, I flourish. And I flourish because I trust. And I give thanks. Borrowing again from 1 Thessalonians, I give thanks in all circumstances. I, I trust and I give thanks and I wait. I wait on God's ways. It's not just that God's love is steadfast. It's that David's trust is too. So by the end of the psalm, David's not just affirming truth about God. He's looking in the mirror and he's affirming truth about himself. He can say, even now, by God's grace, I flourish. And that can be almost as vital to grasp the truth about ourselves. First and foremost is the truth of God. But then in that mirror we see the truth about ourselves. And and that's what completes the reflection, the meditation. We know God and now we know ourselves better too. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. So those three sections to guide us as we go here. Psalm 52, falsehood. David characterizes his enemy of his. And then future. David looks forward to the chilling, just future that awaits this enemy and flourishing. He looks in the mirror and says this about himself. Now, what do we take from this psalm now that we've made our way through it? Well, there are lessons here to learn both from the content of the psalm, the content of it, and from the canonicity of it, and by that I mean the very fact that it's in the Bible. So let's think about those two, the content of the psalm and the canonicity of it, I mean the fact that it's in God's Word. First of all, when it comes to the content, what David actually says here in this psalm, brothers and sisters, we can learn this lesson. Whatever the depths are that the Lord takes you down into, and they may be deep and dark indeed, it could be a situation in which somebody has lied in an effort to do you harm. It could be a situation, again, thinking about this whole episode in David's life, it could be a situation in which you managed to bring harm on somebody else. You didn't, you didn't foresee the consequences of something that you said or did. It happens. It could be a situation in which you feel like you're in danger and you're not entirely sure how you're going to get away from it. Whatever the depths may be that the Lord takes you down into, you can still flourish there. Isn't that a wonder? And by flourishing, I mean you can still grow in your knowledge of God and in your knowledge of yourself in the light of God and in your trust in Him and in obedience, all of those things. 
You can still flourish. And the reason you can is the same reason as it was for David, which is that even down in those depths, you can still trust that his word is true. And you can still give him thanks for blessings, both heavenly and earthly, that you open your eyes to see. And you can still wait on his ways, knowing that your present depths are not the end of your story. You can still grow like that. There's nothing about your circumstances that rules that out. Even if your circumstances are what I was describing before, a liar who's out to get you, or the harmful circumstances, consequences of your own action, or feeling threatened. David said, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Don't let your circumstances ever tell you that that green and growth is on hold. Because it never has to be that way. And we can learn that from the content of this psalm, especially what David says at the end about himself. So that from the content of the psalm. Now, what can we learn from the canonicity of this psalm? And again, by that I mean the fact that it's in the Bible at all. It's included in God's Word. And not just this one poem, but a whole host of them. All of these different poems and passages in Scripture in which God speaks to us through the speaking and the outpouring of His servant. Believers like us. So what do we make of that? What can we take from that? Well, what we can learn from it is this. That the goodness, the value of the expression of our own spiritual experience. The goodness, the value of the expression of our own personal spiritual experience. I mean, think about it. If God had wanted to, God could have given us a book that was pure dictation. He could have found a way. He's God. With no poetry like this in it anywhere. Could have given us a Bible that was pure dictation. He could have revealed himself to just a few men and women along the way. And he could have said to them, just write down what I tell you. That's all I want from you. That's your only role. You have one job. I'm going to give you a set of truth statements. Just write it all down and I'll check your spelling when you're done. And if one of those scribes had said something like, can I also write out how this makes me feel? Can I talk about what I've been through? Can we put that in there too? The answer would have come back, silence, earthling. Silence, you mere pitiful creature of the dust. You write down what I tell you. You've got one job. Spare me your feelings. God could have given us a book like that. But he didn't. God gave us a book that has built into it the poetic expressions of the spiritual experiences of genuine believers. The Bible has built into it 
the expressions of the spiritual experiences of genuine believers. That has the effect of putting a divine seal of approval on that very phenomenon. In other words, for God to put these poems in his word, it's his way of saying, it's a good thing for my people to express themselves like this as they go down into the depths where I take them and then ascend the heights where I exalt them. It's a good thing. John Calvin called the whole book of the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. That's how Calvin put it. And he called it that because as you flip through those 150 Psalms, you find practically every emotion that it's possible for a Christian to feel. If God had wanted to, he could have just dictated pure prose about that vast spectrum of Christian emotion, like some kind of med school anatomy textbook. But he didn't. And it has the effect of putting a divine seal of approval on expressions like these. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian has to be a poet. Some are wired that way, some are not. But it does mean that it's a good thing for us to find ways, to find some way of getting out of us the spiritual experience that's inside of us, what we've been through, how it makes us feel, how we make sense of it. So yeah, maybe it is poetry. Maybe it is songwriting to the choir master. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's an ongoing blog that you keep so that others can enter into the experience. Or just one or two paragraphs that you write now and then and share with just one other person. Maybe it's a conversation over coffee with a brother or sister in Christ. In, in which you share back and forth what you're going through, how it makes you feel, how you make sense of it. It can be poetic. It doesn't have to be. It can be a tricky thing to keep up iambic pentameter as you're sharing coffee with somebody at Starbucks. Or maybe you go for a walk with them and you talk those things over because it's a help just to be moving, to get your blood going as you process and as you share. We can find ways to do this. And think about it, throughout church history, God's people have found ways to do this. Journals and letters and prayers that we have from throughout the ages that we've been blessed by. And that whole phenomenon is inspired in part by the example of the Psalms. It's a good thing for believers to do this, whether it gets preserved or not. And let's face it, in most cases, it will not be. And that's okay. It's still a good thing that we do this. And then we can unpack it just a little bit further. We can add this at the end. And here we can build on something we noticed when we got started. Remember, I was saying when we got started, it's regularly the case with David's psalms that 
He's writing because of, inspired by something he's going through, but the poem that he writes is not therefore limited to what he's going through. He expresses himself in a given time, in a particular circumstance, and yet he does so in a way that transcends that moment and that circumstance. And that's because David knew God. And because he knew God, he knew that there were truths and realities that were in play that were bigger than himself. And that too, brothers and sisters, that's a, that's a lesson for us about our own Christian lives and about our own expression of our Christian experience. Even as we take seriously the present moment in which we find ourselves, and we should Because that present moment is a gift from God. He's placed us in it. Still, we can lift our gaze from it. So maybe I lift my gaze and I look back to the past. And it's as if I can hear my own past voice teaching me in the present and reminding me of things I learned years ago. Or maybe I lift my gaze and I look forward to the future, to my hope. And that puts the present in perspective. Or maybe I look over to you. I lift my gaze and I look over to you across the table at Starbucks or as we're walking along the path. And I say gently, I think there's something here that you can learn too because I know you're down in some depths of your own. Or maybe I lift my gaze and I look up. Always good to look up and to behold again the glory and the steadfast love of God that we shall never outlast. We always find ourselves in our present moment, but we are never entirely confined to it. There's always past and future and eternity. There's always the light and wisdom we can gain when we look up and we look around in all of these directions. We look up from the here and now. So, brothers and sisters, it has been a bit of a detour today. We've taken a detour to the Psalms, to Psalm 52. Lord willing, we'll get back to 1 Samuel next week. And you won't be surprised to hear that we'll be getting back to David in danger and on the run. He's still right there, right where we left him. Let's just remember that when we get back to David's story next week, we'll also be getting back to a man who cried out to God and who trusted in God and who wrote it out for the people of God, like you and me. Thank God that he did. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word for all of the books and and writings and passages that we find in it, for how we can turn from one page to another and each, each sheds light on the other. Thank you for the marvel that is the Bible that you have placed in our hands. We thank you for David, not yet a king and already a poet, the sweet singer of Israel, We thank you for his testimony. We would take it to heart today that even in our depths we can flourish as he did. Help us to take that with us into the week ahead.
And help us, we pray, to find ways, after David's example, to get out of us the experience that's inside of us, that we might bless others, that we might flourish indeed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.